Catalina, welcome. Thank you. How are you, Zoe? Good. Very excited. Um, thank you very much for inviting me into your home and uh, for a lovely lunch earlier on. Um, thank you also for being part of podcasts. So just for the listeners and the viewers, they'll have a bit of a bio about you, but tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing at the moment in terms of uh, your work and uh, what your passions are at the moment. Good. Well, my name is Catalina Marencha Cruz. I'm Colombian. I'm 38 years old. And uh, I have been an end-of-life doula for eight years in Colombia. And with the pandemic, my service went just like a global service during the pandemic. Many things happened in terms of how we were living, death and dying, and what were the solutions that we were at that moment coming with in order to help people to navigate that and in order to also help people who were not allowed to move, you know, like to be physically present with mm -hmm. the dying, um, to come out with some strategies of being present somehow. So at the moment, what I have been doing is being a doula for migrants. Right. Which means that uh, I am here to support people who, as I am, are living in another country and they are not able to support or be physically present with their families in their countries of origin, which is very painful. And at the same time, helping people, you know, who are living overseas to face existential questions, not just about death and dying that every human being faces, but also the logistics that are behind that. Okay. Especially when you live in an island in the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> and that can be very expensive. So I'm an end of life doula and right now I'm really trying to to have a voice for not just for me but for migrants, because we are many in these countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to have conversations. So this is why I'm very happy to be here with you around what are the questions or how can we improve the services that are great there in terms of care, but also in terms of the funeral industry. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. And for living, I work as a manager um, in a non-for-profit with the education sector. Okay. So if we go uh, back to Colombia, um, tell me a little bit about Death and dying in Colombia, how is that sort of uh, seen from that cultural perspective? That's a great question. And I think the first thing that it will be interesting to understand is how different the context, not just culture, is. We are in the middle of a demographic transition, which means that just until now, Latin America, especially Colombia, is starting to have more than 20% of the population over 65. Right. So all of the questions that the European countries or the developed countries or the northern countries have been facing for 30 or 40 years are just new to our cultures, right? right? We are just facing until now the fact that people are living longer, number one, and number two, that we have the technologies and the tools to make people live for, you know, a <laughs> hundred years. Yeah. So that's something that's important to mention because we are just starting to face 
all of the problems in terms of ethics and morals that these countries have been talking about for years and years and years. Right. Which means that we don't have the infrastructure that you already have in place in Australia or in Europe. Yeah. It means that we don't have hospices in place. We just have a couple of them in, in Colombia. I might be wrong, but we just have four, probably, nationwide for a population of 55 million people. So right. this is how new this is. In terms of palliative care, we don't have as many doctors and nurses as we might need to have at the moment. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, we are not facing the care crisis that the United States or Europe are facing at the moment because we are family oriented. We are yes. still a community or a society in which families are big enough to take care of, the, of their elders. Mm -hmm. And elders are still living with us. So yeah. of course, we, we are in a moment, I think we are in a transition. So elders are moving to nursing houses, but lots of them are still living with their families. So primary care is not hospice, is not hospital, is family. So this community approach makes that the conversation is different. Mm -hmm. We are also a very Catholic country. So we have, even if we are not Catholic in re religiously talking, culturally talking, we are. So God is just part of the language, you know, like, God bless you. Hi, how are you doing? God, you know, like if God wants you to. So it's an interesting point in which we are transitioning to a society that it's getting older. We are in a transition in which young people are not that religious. So we are mm -hmm. open to have the conversation about medical assisted dying and about how to die, mm -hmm. right? but our elders are not there. But incredibly in Colombia for 35 years or more, we have had the right to die with dignity. Mm -hmm. And today we are part of the very short list of countries in which medical assistance assisted dying is fully legal. Mm -hmm. So that's a surprise because that's not the case for every country and not every country in, Amer in Latin America. So that's kind of the context. And when I became an end of life doula, it was just very interesting to see that uh, we have so many options, but all of these options are very difficult to teach or to make people aware of what they are, what they mean, what's the context, because the context is always mm -hmm. important. And also try to understand how you can empower families and communities and not just leave this end of life care to hospices and to hospitals, because that infrastructure doesn't exist. And it will take like a couple of years until we get there. Mm -hmm. So the question is for me all the time, how do we get that back home? I am completely convinced that any individual in the world is going to face death at some point, either mm -hmm. it's on or is going to experience, you know, like this dying path of someone 
that is in, in this end of life. So we need to be prepared, you know, like we need okay. education. And, and this idea of an end of life doula, I think it's related to maybe we don't need to be a professional, but maybe we need to have like some basics and some very specific tools to start talking about death, dying and breathing mm -hmm. in a context in which we are community-based society, which is very different. So it sounds to me from what you've said um, that in some ways in Colombia, things are more developed from a perspective of looking after the older people. You talked about some people going to nursing houses, which I assume is nursing homes mm -hmm. that we would we call them here mm -hmm. or residential aged care facilities in, in Australia. So that's not so prevalent in Colombia, that kind of setup. And so the the care for older people in you know, generations has been done by the families and so you're saying that there's getting to a tipping point where that's becoming so much of a population that needs that care how will we sustain that going forward is that is that correct exactly and also that there isn't there aren't many palliative care services there so four hospices you think in colombia um but that's inpatient settings Tell in, me a in, the in the cities. So again, from a community perspective, there, is there that support from a palliative care community service? Does that exist? It does exist, but it has been developing in the last 20 years. Okay. So, you know, it has started that movement, all of these ideas, you know, they have arrived to Colombia, but we haven't developed them yet. Right. So until now, we are starting to see the first generations of palliative care specialists in terms of doctors, right. nurses, therapists, all of that. But you can say that everyone in Colombia has the option to ask for palliative care. Even if it's, you know, like today, this option is like more prevalent. It is not the case for the whole country. Yeah. And so I think that's the same in many countries where access to palliative care is problematic so what about the drugs that are used in palliative care so um the access to opioids i know that's a, a problem internationally and certainly in latin american countries that's a, that, that's a problem is that the same thing in colombia what's the access to opioids like so when you compare um the access to this kind of medicines especially to opium um, in Latin America, in Colombia, and you compare it to the States, to Australia, or to Europe, you are going to see that in comparison, we don't have that much access, number one. Number two, there is a very specific situation in Colombia and in Latin America that I think it's relevant to mention, which is the war against drugs. Yeah. So, for example, Mexico and Colombia, you know, like, are yeah. the first producers of coca leaf, yeah. and of Amapola, but we don't have access to the legal medicines that are made out of these plants, yeah. okay? So we have this war against drugs that has been going and going on for years and years, and also this discourse from the government to say that, oh, well, you know, those plants and everything that is done out of these plants or made out of these plants mm -hmm. is problematic. So in people's minds, it's just like, oh, well, you know what? Maybe if even if I have access, I don't want to get adult. Yeah. So people don't understand what is the use and what is the place that these kind of medicines have today, and especially at the end of life. And when they think about it, they think about it more in terms of 
addiction, they think more about it in terms of this is wrong, yeah. you know, like, so there are these two sides and because of the world against drugs, what we are facing is that Latin American countries are less open to legalize or to regulate better the access to these very specific yeah. products. So, you know, like it's not just um, a cultural problem, but also is a policy. Yeah. So there's certainly, from what you're saying, an, an access issue, mm -hmm. but then also we have, the, that's the same cultural things we have in UK, New Zealand, Australia, the three places I've worked in the past, I'm sure in many other countries, people have this perception around becoming an addict to opioids and therefore fear of using them. And it becomes a big problem in terms of how we, how we look after them. Exactly. You mentioned Mexico um, in your, in your uh, discussion just a little bit. So obviously in, in Mexico, they have quite a healthy relationship in terms of with the relationship with the people who have died, the Dia de los Muertos and the, that kind of festival of, of the dead to celebrate the people who have died. Is that the same in Colombia or yeah. is it, or is there anything similar to that or yeah. that, that attitude? No, 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 you know, like I think that globally something that has really been happening since uh, the last century is this whole idea of taking death out of the private sphere. Yeah. So before people used to born and die in their yeah. homes and Today is less and less, right? So you don't want to see, you don't want to know about yeah. it, you don't want to be, you don't want to talk about it. So I think that's something that is globally there. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that we don't have, except for the indigenous people or the indigenous groups that are very that are very important and present in Colombia, the relationship we have with the funeral industry is pretty much the same that we have here. So it's basically one option, so or two options, you know, like either you go to the cemetery or you got cremated, and then that's it. You go to church, um, and you have very specific religious ceremonies. We are seeing an important shift, especially during the pandemic, mm -hmm. of people trying to do more memorials, to celebrate life more, to have more intimate celebrations, live celebrations but we don't have a healthy relationship with that. Yeah. Especially, you know, like on the top of that, because of the world against drugs, something that Colombia and Mexico share in common is violence. Yeah. So it's not just death because you are ill, but it's the violence that we live in our countries. And um, we are not developing a healthy, yeah. a healthy relationship with yeah. that at all, especially because we are a very, very, very violent country. Yeah. So no, no, we, we, I don't think we, we have that at all. Yeah. And then you mentioned the indigenous population and so different indigenous populations there, mm -hmm. obviously. So, um, from that perspective, are they more, uh, open to discussions about how people die or, or is that again, the same thing of just keeping it away because of perhaps maybe the, the way society is or cultural beliefs. Is that so the same? It depends on the groups, Yeah. but I think they have rituals yeah. 
and they have a view of the world that is completely different to ours. So that is clearly part of their cosmovision. It's not a big deal as it is for yeah. us. And they also have, you know, like rituals. What, what I think it's the big difference in what I have seen is that they have rituals, not just for death, but also for transitions in life. So, yes. you know, not just marriage, but when someone becomes older or it's 18 or something, they are going to have like these moments of coming together as a tribe or as yeah. a group or as a community to think about important moments of life or to reflect about important topics. So what they do have, which we don't have that much probably in our societies, is this beautiful idea of coming together to discuss about relevant topics. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have a fire and then you're going to have the coca leaf and then you're going to talk from your heart and then you're going to share knowledge. And also, I think it's different the relationship they have with nature. So very interestingly, for some of them, war, you know, like when we talk about death, it's just like, oh, I will accept that just if. It's because illness, if uh, I am age more above 65 and I'm, I'm in my bed and be like, <sighs> and that's it. That's the only death that we are going to consider. If I've done everything in my life that if I, I wanted If I'm fulfilled, I have kids, you know, like I bought a house, I travel. Uh, yeah. All of this. From their perspective, death is death. And violent death is also part of what is completely normal. Because nature is the way that nature has to control, mm. you know, the population yeah. and to defend herself and to have like this balance. Right. So, you know what I mean? It's a completely, completely different cosmovision yeah. of the world in which nature is part of. Um, so I think, I don't know if, if it's more healthy because all of these groups have also been facing the, the arrival of the, um, of the, the occidental ideas, but for sure they have more tools to, as a community, process what is happening. Yeah. And I am convinced of that. And of course it depends on where and who they are. But I think they're more like connected and open to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So just coming back then to the immigrant side of what you're doing at the moment. So this is another passion of taking that death doula perspective, but bring it to an immigrant population. So tell me about your movement from Colombia to Australia. So what were the things that really highlighted to you the issues for immigrants coming to Australia? Well, I think that before coming to Australia, the pandemic happened. Yeah. And with the pandemic, the impossibility of global mobility. So I don't know if you remember, because people don't remember at this point the mm. pandemic, but when people were dying in Spain, you know, like they were dying yeah. on daily basis. Yeah. They were dying alone at homes. And there was not possibility, even for those who were living in Madrid, to have a proper goodbye. 
and to have a funeral ritual. Mm. And then when it started to happen all over the world, you have people who were migrants who were reaching out and saying, mom is dying in Colombia. I am living in the States. Watch. Yeah. What can I do? Yeah. And I remember the first month, the first month, I was just crying. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I think that was the first time that I realized that there was an extra layer when the mobility is reduced for any reason. But the migrant population or the people who were not able to be physically present in the moment of death were suffering a lot. So did you have friends who are going through this experience in Australia, not being able to get back to Colombia? So not in Australia, but, you know, like in the U.S. or right. even in Mexico or even in Colombia, people who were just living in a different city, but they were not able to come to Bogota, which is the capital city yeah. where I was living, because of the restrictions. Yeah. You know, that was nuts. That was crazy. That was crazy, crazy, crazy. So I will call here to compassion and empathy because I think everyone at that very specific moment of history realized how hard it is to see someone dying and you can't be there even if you are in the same country. So I know that here in Australia, even if you wanted to move from one state to another, you have to do the quarantine and you have to stay there for long. So, you know, for years and years, people were not able to see each other, Mm. even if you were living in the same country, right? So I think, and I wanted to mention this first, because I think people can relate to what I'm saying. Yeah. So probably you were not a migrant in that moment, but at some point you were not able to go to visit your parents or your family or someone who was dying. Mm. With the migrant population, you have so many different layers. I think I can I, I, I don't think it would be interesting to go through everything, but so we don't, as migrants, we don't have the same rights. And I think that's very important and relevant because depending on our visa status, we are going to face different problems mm-hmm. regarding access to healthcare but also the possibility to come back. So there are cases in which people are migrants. I don't think there is such a thing as an illegal human being, but they're illegal in -hmm. countries that they're living and working for. They can't go back. They don't have the option, even if they want to. Mm -hmm. If they come back, they will never go back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like you have refugees, you have illegal migrants, which are people that don't have the proper visas or the right to work in the territories. And I'm not just talking about Australia in general. You have another category of people, which is very interesting. And it's all of those people who are migrating because of healthcare. So they have a kid or they have someone who is dying at home and they say, I won't let you die. We will migrate because of that. Because I know that in other countries you would have access to yeah. the treatments. And then you have students. So, you know, like it's a whole universe. Yeah. It's a whole universe. I can't compare myself. I am fairly, you know, like I feel at peace because I have my permanent residency. I speak English. I have two degrees, two master's degrees. And I think that from that perspective, I'm privileged. 
but I know that's not the experience for every single migrant. Hmm. Um, so when you look at that very time first, you know, we are not migrants, it's not an homogeneous group. It isn't. Yeah. It isn't. What might be, um, you know, like homogeneous or that thing that you can relate with any person is that when you ask, oh, what's home or where's home? It's a it's a very interesting question, actually. And I'm, I was recently talking to um, a colleague who was asked that question: where where did they feel home was? And um, they actually said it was Sydney, um, but they're actually from Germany. So it's interesting to get the the perspective of why that person felt that Sydney felt more like home and it probably had more to do with who they were as a person and you know, their, their character. But yeah, it's a very good question. What, where do we call home? And we've certainly seen people as refugees, obviously coming into the country and trying to provide support and services for them uh, and to enable them to have good end of life care, for example. Um, and also visitors who are visiting their relatives and then become unwell. And then how do we, Best support them. So, with what you've seen from this migrant population, which is heterogeneous, not homogeneous, as well as refugees, how do you, where do you think um, the major problems are that we can help those populations at the moment in terms of when they become unwell um, and supporting them in those those circumstances? So, I think there are different dimensions. The first one is, of course, healthcare and the access to healthcare. Again, depending on your visa status, you are going to have a very different experience. So the Medicare card and the color of the Medicare card is going to change the experience everyone has yeah. in terms of accessing the healthcare system. I think in literature, there have been a couple of problems that have been identified, not just in Australia, but everywhere around the world when you have like this huge um, migrant population. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you are aware of this, but uh, by 2017, I think, three point million people who were living in Australia, over 65, were migrants. Mm -hmm. Three two million people, we are not talking about a small population mm -hmm. here. Over 65. If I talk about the Colombian immigration, which is recent, I can tell you that we are young people who are coming to the country. And I have been living here for 14 months. And every single month, I know someone who is dying or who died, who is under 30. So they're students, basically mm. students. <laughs> so... You have a problem with access to the healthcare system in terms of how much you pay and how much you can afford to pay. Then you have these huge, huge language and cultural barriers. So, you know, I, I think that I speak English and I have been living in different countries, but I can tell you that I don't know yet specifically how to use the health system. Yeah. It, yeah, it's just like ah. Uh -huh. So uh, I think I think there are people who are 
who have been born here and still don't understand. Yeah, the, you, you don't the understand. You know, like so, so they charge you for something they don't. It's it's depending if you have private insurance, they're going to cover up to, but they don't cover all of the services. Yeah. So it's difficult. So the, the systems are so, you know, the healthcare system is difficult to understand for migrants. Even for Australians, probably, or for people who are who have been living here for a while. Uh, but then you are facing the language barrier. Mm. So even in English, it's <laughs> it's difficult to understand. Yeah. You don't have interpreters. And that's that's a problem that globally has been identified. The documents are not translated into other languages. Yeah. Hmm? So people don't understand. They don't understand. And number two, and maybe, you know, like, because this is a conversation, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your own experience. But in other countries, when you are illegal, you don't want to go to the hospital. Because if you go there, you're always thinking, oh, my God, even if they know that I'm illegal, I will go back home. Mm -hmm. So there is like this, you know, like there is this lack of trust in the system as a whole. With refugees, you have these traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. and people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to talk about it. Last time I was talking with a, a person who is working with refugees in Sydney and she was telling me, you know, they know, they know that they are sick but they don't want to get a diagnosis because they know that they will die and probably no one is going to do anything about them mm. because the system doesn't allow them to mm. have access to medical care. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that there are many, many reasons, many reasons, access, the language, uh, but also from a team perspective, this multiculturality, doesn't it always exist? Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, like if you are working in a hospital, you are not going to have one team member from one different nationality or one team member who is going to speak Chinese or, yeah. or you know, one of the many, many dialects that people speak in English yeah. and in India or um, Spanish or yeah. whatever. So there, there is also a, a point that has been identified like everywhere around the world but then when you go beyond and you think about the funeral industry that's another problem Mm. so here we are talking about funeral poverty Mm. so funeral poverty is basically that all over the world we are identifying that families and individuals are not able to afford the funerals, yeah. because they are very expensive, especially in cemeteries, you know, because of the property prices have just been mm-hmm. raising and raising. If you die in Australia, if I die in Australia today, and I want to get a corpse repatriation, I already know that I will have to pay at least, at least 15,000 Australian dollars. Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't know about and recognize. And certainly from my work, I've seen many people who we've had to have a conversation about, you know, if they want to get repatriation, we try and get that sorted out while they're still alive Mm -hmm. because it's cheaper. 
if they are well enough to get across. And it becomes another problem that we have to make sure that we ask the right questions early enough to start planning the care accordingly. But like you say, sometimes people say, I want to go home. And really they mean home to their their country rather than home to their houses. Exactly. And sometimes home can mean heaven or wherever they are going to go after they die. So I think it's an important point you raise in terms of how people need to think about repatriation, but obviously it's very important for those immigrant populations in terms of one, having the trust that they can go and seek the healthcare they need and be also really meeting people who understand that they're from a different background, they may have a different health literacy, it's going to be difficult potentially to get the information in the language that they need it to be in so they can understand. And also to navigate the healthcare system. Even talking to someone who's Australian, I think sometimes it's difficult to navigate the system and for them to understand exactly the whole ins and outs of complexities of where they are in their disease process and who they need to talk to and you know how to get the best care from the system. Um, so... I certainly have seen people in that situation trying to make a decision about can we transfer this person back to their country of origin before they die and it becomes very, very difficult. Um, it sounds like you're talking from a personal experience or from obviously cases that you've seen. Um, can you can you elaborate a little bit more on some of those, those stories? Maybe that might be helpful for people to understand. So, again, I think that one... One of the of the biggest questions that I haven't identified in the different papers that I have been reading is this huge question about home. Mm. You know, because when 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 you look at what has been written about death, my and migration or the dying with dignity and migration, you have a lot of things that have been already identified, and I really think that in many cases the palliative care teams have been able to say, okay. This is what we are going to do now. But this whole question, which is philosophical of what home is, mm-hmm. is something that probably is going to define the, the care path that you are going to build with the people who are helping you to understand where to go or what to do mm-hmm. and at which stage. You know, because the the planning starts earlier before you die and it should happen when you are not in a situation mm. in which you are ill if, if we can have that conversation about death and dying exactly yeah so if you yeah. can have it so i'm an enterprise ruler before coming in Colombia. please this is what i would love you to do this is the music i've been here for 14 months and i'm just still thinking like oh, <laughs> i don't know what i want number one even if I know what I want, because I have started to imagine what, what it would look like, I don't know if the services are there for helping me to accomplish what I want to. So this discussion about home is around where do I want to die? Do I want to die here in Australia? Do I want my family or my communities to come here to Australia and to help me? That's the first, you know, path. Mm-hmm. 
The second path is the one that you were mentioning. Do I want to come back to my home, to my country of origin? Mm-hmm. And do I want to die there? Both of them have different problems and different actors that need to be involved. Mm-hmm. So in the first scenario, specific case, here we are going to talk about experience. I need my community, my family to come to Australia and to be with me. How? I'm illegal. <laughs> how, I, how am I going to help my parents to come to help me? Mm-hmm. In terms of the visa, we are just talking about papers. Mm-hmm. Last year, there was a very important case from a Colombian couple. They were living not in California, in the States. I am quite sure that their status was illegal. She was pregnant. She was 27 or 28, you know, like above 30. She was pregnant. She was having headaches. She didn't have access to the medical system Mm -hmm. or to health system. Mm -hmm. And then when it just became too much, they realized that she had brain cancer. So she delivered the baby. And then they say, there is really nothing we can do for you. You are going to die in a couple of weeks. So you had a dad with three kids, a newborn, mm-hmm. a woman who was dying, and the impossibility for them to have their closest communities, their parents to come because of their status. Mm-hmm. So what happened at the end of the day is that they started, like they were influencers, so they started this campaign to push, you know, like in Colombia and in the States. So it was like this huge, but you won't believe it, it was just like this huge media campaign. They went to every single show to tell people about the stories. So at the end of the day, I think less than a week before she died, the Colombian government was able to push, you know, like to, yeah, you know, it was like a fast track. To get family there. To get family there. Yeah. So family there was the passport, the visas. Yeah. And then people in Latin America, the Latin American community, you know, because they're very well organized in the States, you know, yeah. Yeah. pushing and asking all of the national authorities that were in charge of receiving these people to make that happen. Yeah. So... The family arrived and she passed away a couple of days after that, so just four days. Mm. Do you imagine the amount of money, energy, and time that it took to have two people just to mm. go there to be present for four days mm. because they needed to to see that her daughter was fine? Mm. This would have been... During COVID as well, COVID no. would have been a practice. No, no, this was before COVID, was it? It was worse. During COVID, it was worse. Yes, yeah. Because even if you had the papers, yeah. even if you had the visa. You had another reason to not be denied. No international flights. Yeah. You know, if you, even if you had the money, you couldn't. Yeah. No flights. So here we are not talking about the pandemic, but yeah, you know, like to, to make people be more empathetic about the situation. So in this first, maybe romanticized idea of I want my community to come. To come. What, what about the community that might be here already? So is there a big Colombian community in Australia or in Melbourne? 
in Melbourne. There, there is. But that was my second, you know, fault. There is a community. There is a community who, who can support you. But when you ask someone what, you know, what, what do you think home is, they're going to think about very specifically. Mom, dad, yeah. siblings. So even if you have a lot of people around you, you know, like trying to support you, yeah. to contain you in this. You very want the special times, people there. You will always want the special people there, and the special people want. We, yeah, they would like to be there. Yeah. So in terms of the logistics, in this case that I'm talking about, this very specific example, maybe they don't. They these people didn't even have an idea of how to apply to a USA visa. So complicated. Maybe they don't even know how to use a computer to get the online application. And maybe mm. they didn't have the money to pay for the visa. We are not even talking about, you know, that, uh, the tickets. Mm. So from moment number one, you can see how a family is going to face all of these administrative barriers that if you are just thinking that home is where you live and your community is just around and maybe they just need to take a train or a tram or a car to drive, mm. you are not going to face. Mm. And you don't think about the money and the resources mm. that you need to have in order to make people yeah. come. So let's suppose that we are in Australia and we want to have two people to come from Colombia just the tickets and the visa for one person will be around $3,000 to $3,500 if they're not coming Christmas. <laughs> mm. That's expensive. Yeah. That's very expensive. Yeah. And then when they arrive, they earn in Colombian pesos. So there is already like this huge disparity because people earning in Colombian pesos can't afford mm. to leave their life in Australia. Mm. It's too expensive for them. So the economical burden that families from migrants have to face is 25 times higher than the, than the burden that families as general mm. face when they have someone who is already ill or at the end, like, mm. you know what I mean? Number yeah. one. Yeah. And number two, they arrive here. They don't speak English. They don't speak English. So in terms of social workers, you know, like that it's important to understand if, if, if it is possible for these people to come, where are they going to live? Yeah. So in some specific countries, I know that there are specific programs. So they are going to live in the hospitals while their families, you know, the person who is ill is going to be there. So yeah. they are supported. They have a community that is supporting them with money or with food or, or with shelter or whatever. But also they will have to face to talk to the, to the doctors. Mm. And the doctor will come and will tell them in English what is happening. I don't get you. I don't understand anything. Yeah. I mean, there the, are interpreting services that obviously will be utilized in those cases and obviously it is an issue i mean i know that some hospitals have accommodation for relatives coming 
they could be interstate, they could be even from within the same state. So there are those resources, but you know, how long a person stays there for and how much it costs is another consideration. Exactly. So and let's think about doesn't have like all of the money. Yeah. So, so then we've considered all those aspects of you being here and trying to bring the people you love closer to you. The other option is like you say, to be able to plan to go back and to be back in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And to then be with the people you love there. So tell me about that second option. So the second option, when? Yeah. And who is going to pay for it again? So through case, Switzerland, Colombia. So in Switzerland, you have a very interesting network of volunteers who are supporting migrant population. They want people to go back to their countries of origin. So they have special programs for for paying for the tickets for people to go back. So there was this person who was, I think he had like a brain cancer or something. And he was really at the end of of his life, really at the end of his life. So if that person wanted to come back, it was not just about paying for an economy ticket, Mm -hmm. but it was about paying for business ticket for him and for, I don't know if it was a nurse or a doctor yeah, or an someone. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And that went up to 30,000 euros just, you know, like to get back. Hmm. But then you will have to face two situations. So you're coming back after being away. You know, depending on where you want to go, let's suppose that you're going to Colombia. If you go back to Bogota, good, because you know that the services are going to be there for Mm. you and probably you can afford them. But if you go to another city or if you go, you know, like to a rural um, area, who's going to take care of you? So here you have access to palliative care. Here you have access to medicines and there you don't know. And there you don't have the relationship that you have with your palliative care team or with your doctor. And all of this history and all of these uh, these discussions that you know that have already happened are not there. Yeah, or will have to be translated to carry with you. And you have to go again through this very painful and uncomfortable situation of explaining or or maybe even justifying yourself of why you decided to go through palliative care in a country that doesn't understand that yet. Yeah. But I think the main problem is going to be around the access to medicines. Yeah. That's the biggest pain, biggest yeah. pain that we face in those yeah. countries. Yeah. But even if you go back, so I was back to Colombia for five weeks, you know, like, oh, yeah, go back and I will see my family. And after two or three days, like, oh my God, this is not home. <laughs> you know, like, I thinking of my parents and like, I need, you know, like I need my space. I yeah. need my. So. So it raises the question, which uh, I've been thinking about to get to, because obviously I want to talk about the two different scenarios that you've painted. But the question is, where do you call home, Capadina? I don't know, and and you know, like that's this reflection that I have been having with me and with other people. Mm-hmm. 
And also, I think that to this point, unfortunately, I'm just trying to figure out what are the paths, the options, the problems, and the resources. Yeah. Because the resources are a huge issue. You know, yeah. what, whatever I, I want to do, there is like this big barrier of money or, yeah. or resources. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what home is because home is Colombia. I have been here just for 14 months, right? But there, I don't have a safe space in which I would say, like, oh, no, I want to die here. I don't want to die at a hospital. But probably if I go back, I will have to because then I would feel, you know, like supported, contained. Mm -hmm. But my house is not going to be my house. I don't know if my parents want to see me dying in their place. So there are a lot of discussions that are very uncomfortable mm. that I will have to face with them. Mm. But there was one more thing that I have been thinking about. And it's not, it's something, it's not new, but it's important, which is this idea of medical assisted time. Mm -hmm. When you talk, maybe, you know, like I, I am completely sure that people come to you, okay. Doctor, when am I going to that? Like when? Like tell me, tell me a day and a time. Mm -hmm. When you plan for your death, you're okay. So I want my pet here, mom, dad, my cousin, twenty-five friends. These people are not going to get just the time to come and to stay there for months or for days, mm -hmm. waiting just for you to die. Mm -hmm. That's also the end. So there is this new dimension that I've never thought of, of the medical assistant dying, mm -hmm. which is if for some reason I get diagnosed of a terminal disease, whatever it is. And if for me, home is Colombia. And if for me, what is important, it's to be surrounded by my community, family and friends. That option is going to be more relevant than it was before coming here. Mm -hmm. Because there you really have the possibility to have everything under control and to plan. But you will have to justify it to people and be like, no, but how? You need to fight. You need to keep, you know, like all of this stuff. Justify it to people in Colombia? Yeah. You know, yeah. if I want to say goodbye or if I want to, you know, like those conversations that you might not want to have in this new context of mm. Catalina is in and she wants to come back and then she knows that she's going to die on mm. July the 11th. Would you, would you talk to them about that to say this is your choice that you're making and that to try and prepare them so that therefore when you get there, you don't have those conversations to have to deal with. Exactly. Because if I want to get home, it's not just because, and, and that's, that's something that I have been thinking about of, it's not just because of me. As a doula, I always open the door to those conversations and to these goodbyes to these closures to happen. Mm. So if I'm coming back, it's to do that, the closure, yeah. not just the, yeah, 
you know, I mean, it's to open the opportunity for me and for those who I know are close to me and they love me to say bye mm -hmm. and to say bye in a way in which is going to be meaningful for me, but that at the same time is going to help them with the breathing process. So I don't know if I'm, you know, like it's just like this huge thing in Colombia, there is, there are all of the, of the options are legal. Then it's just about, okay, should I rent an Airbnb? Should I go to a hospital? Am I going to set up my parents' place? You know, like, because well, these are the, these are the logistics and I suppose, logistics. yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the issue is about trying to, I mean, when people come to us and say, how long have I got? We're not gods. We don't have a crystal ball. I could say to someone, you've got three months. Sometimes people say three months because the next visit in the outpatient clinic is going to be in three months time or the chemotherapy cycle is going to be, we'll roughly know given the cycles that you've had, you know, we'll see you in three months and see how you're doing. And then we'll go from there, but it also pushes out that. And if, per, if someone dies before that three months, then the family could come back and say, well, you said we have three months, mm -hmm. you've cheated us. If you go back and, you know, you said I have three months and I'm here six months, 12 months later on, what do you know? Do you know what you're talking about? Because, you know, this is, we planned things for three months and then now we're still here and what's going on. So this is not something that. I specifically tell people to give people a number. I think we have to look at how people are deteriorating and work out what we can change and then look at the trajectory and give an idea of the rate of deterioration. That gives us an idea. It's a ballpark figure. Of and prognosis is a, is a huge guesstimate. You never know. We're getting, we're getting more information to maybe get a better sense, but I don't think it's a, it's an art that medicine has worked on for many, Years. I mean, we're good at diagnosing things. We're good at treating things, supposedly. But prognostication is another thing. Okay, we like to have a diagnosis, certainly. Um, so that's one thing. And I think that, you know, it's difficult for people to plan, but they don't have all the information at their fingertips. And people, we like to be in control of things. But I think it's interesting what you say from two perspectives. One is, where is home? And where do we feel that home is? The second thing is end of life or bit where you die is usually where you feel safe, where you feel safest. And sometimes the two coincide. That can be your home that you've actually stayed in for years. You've raised your children in, you've lived, your, and your possessions are here. That's where your home is. Sometimes, as you say, for immigrants, Home is back home. My mother is from St. Lucia. She's living in London. Um, I'm the other side of the world. Um, what do I do when she becomes unwell? It's easier for me to get back to London, but I may not have time. Also, I'm lucky in that, you know, my job allows me the financial stability to be able to do that. Um, however, she may want to get back to St. Lucia, 
but she doesn't have a home. Well, she has a home in St. Lucia, but it's not, it's not somewhere that she could really call home because her possessions are not there. She has family there that is less around than they used to be because obviously people have moved on. We are living in a society where people have moved all around the world and we're not living in that kind of cultural landscape that you, yeah. you painted from the beginning with, in Colombia where people are living with their communities and certainly many cultures being part of a community and growing up with your aunts and your uncles, um, your parents. parents, your grandparents. You know, in in New Zealand, they would call it far now. It's your friends and family. It's your net, in some ways, your social network. That allows you to have much more of a feeling of safety and uh, a, a, a link back to generations, intergenerational rituals and way we deal with life and death. So from that perspective, we've lost that becoming an international community now where, you know, as, as young people, we're traveling around the world and we're setting up our lives in very distant places. But I think we all, and it seems to me that you're, you're trying to find that kind of balance between, hey, I'm here, but I'm also, part of me is back. Yeah, my heart is there. Yeah. The heart hasn't <laughs> Yes, maybe. And maybe as people spend more time, certainly for myself, you know, I've lived in UK, grew up in the UK. Do I call the UK home? It's very difficult for me. Um, you know, the, the color of my skin does, does have a, an impact on, you know, how I feel home is, but also the colonialism of the UK and what's happened in the past. So there's an element of, is that, do I really feel at home there? When I lived in um, Italy um, uh, or in Spain, you know, the, the, the kind of word for someone who wasn't from here was, uh, was literally translated to stranger. Yes. Um, so you never really feel that you're, is that home? You're never really going to feel that you're home because you're not part of that culture that, that you put in. So I think there's that element of we all have to make our own way. And when you when you live in different countries, you then try and say, well, maybe this, maybe home is where our possessions are. I don't know. Maybe it's where family is. It's another, another example. But I think it's a good question that you ask. Where do we call home? But also, where do we feel safe? Because safety is going to be where we want to be cared for. And safety is where we're going to want to die. Because that is where we feel we can actually be vulnerable and allow our life as it has existed to come to a natural end or an end that we choose at the moment. People have different options of doing that. But I will add the logistics side, because what I have seen lately with these very young people that have been dying yeah. here in Australia is that like this romantic side of death, which is beautiful, you know, like, oh my God, the miracle. We, we go to GoFundMe and we have 35 thousand dollars for paying for medical bills and for the retrofation of the corpse that is not just going to happen in every single case and maybe this was because you never thought about it but the logistics sides it's important to think about resources from mm. my perspective you know like in end-of-life planning i always think about resources mm. because then even if you want to do something you can quickly you know, like, oh, yeah, I would love to do this, but I don't have 
the, the resources to do it or someone is going to pay for that, my family. Mm -hmm. Do they have the money for doing that? Yeah. So this is why I think in terms of education, we really need to be more realistic about it and not just wait until the moment yeah. to, because you know, like all of these volunteers or all of these communities around or all of these non-for-profit can't afford for every single migrant or immigrant in the world to do this. Yeah. So there is a middle path in which I am at the moment. And sometimes I feel that I would love to stop time again, like in, during the pandemic, when you're just like, oh, I have time. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere. Mm. And to reflect about what the health system, the funeral industries, the death doulas, and all of the ecosystem of the day and that um, territory learn in that very specific moment of history. Because there, I think we have experiences, resources, and tools that we can use to talk about this and to have solutions. Mm. So there is a second thing that when I think about what home is, it's not just what I want to die. It's what I want to rest for the eternity. So, you, you know, like... And not just that, but because I always think about my family, because I, I think that for some reason someone is going to cry for me. <laughs> Where are I going with my ashes? Or I'm mm -hmm. going to be here in Australia, in a cemetery, mm -hmm. in the sea, half of them here in Australia, half of them in Colombia. It's, I don't know. Will I just send a box with some ashes to every single member, <laughs> friend? So they can plant a tree or something. During the pandemic, I think we all developed tools, technological tools, and brilliant ideas to meet in the middle. Because this idea of being fully present, like physically, physically present, is not going to happen. And I think that we also need to understand that. Not every single family member or every single person that it's important for you is going to be there for you for any, for many, many reasons. So at the beginning, you asked me about the relationship that Colombians have with death. Mm. There is not such a thing. But I think that during the pandemic, we developed as a society and as a global society, because I think that's very relevant to the context, new ideas. So if you ask me, one of the things that I have been thinking about is having a living funeral. So hi, people, I will die. <laughs> I just want to say bye to everyone. And it can be on Zoom. Or, you know, like I can use an online platform to organize something that it's meaningful and, so, and, and a beautiful moment in which I will have the time and space to say goodbye and to listen to what people have to say. Mm. So rituals, online rituals, were the best way that as an end-of-life doula I have found in order to help people to navigate this where, 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 where is home. And where is home and how to say goodbye to people. And rituals happened, they, they, they happen not just at the end of life, you know, it's not just funeral, but you can start them beforehand. 
you can start them at the moment of your diagnosis if you want to, or when you are really feeling that the end is just coming mm -hmm. closer and closer. But you also can have funerals or rituals after you die, and not just one. Who says what? With the pandemic, I can tell you that before it was like a huge funeral with 1,000 people. We were not able to meet because of the regulations and the mm -hmm. pandemic and the face mask and whatever. So people have 10, 5, or yeah. a very important number of ceremonies after they pass, in which people came together, you know, like with the ashes or with the tree or different places all over the world to talk about you and to have like this communal moment, community mm. moment to process and to grieve together in beautiful ways, mm. in beautiful ways. And, and, that, and for that, you don't need a dual or a doctor, you know, like it was just community-based. Like, mm. We need to talk about it. We need to organize this. I mean, I think that it's probably a good way to wrap up the conversation because I think the pandemic provided a lot of opportunity for creativity and innovation in many, many different ways. And I think that... I've said this already in the past that what what the pandemic did from a healthcare perspective was, was make the people in cities and metro areas feel what it is like not to have services like the rural and remote areas do. Well, that's their normal. So they actually potentially cope better because they were used to not having things and, and working as communities to, to get to what they needed to get done so get what get what they need to get done but also to support each other to get through difficult times which was not only the pandemic but also death and dying that was happening people were being born um and they couldn't get to see the newborns so there's the there's also the kind of development of technology where you know ashes can be used in very different ways jewelry um, exactly so there's many different things that we need to work on and certainly if it's brought death and dying back into the community and out of the hospital setting and the hospices, then that's a good thing because it means that people will start to think about these conversations, like you say, in planning the end of their lives and also how we remember people. I mean, there's that kind of saying that people are never forgotten as long as there's someone talking about them. And that's why I kind of think that the, the kind of Dia de los Muertos idea of Mexico uh, Mexican culture that is is somehow enabling us to always remember those ancestors that have died, and in some respects, our ancestors are always with us. I mean, that's a another different cultures have this belief, but they are with us because they're in our genes, they're in the molecules that make us up, and so therefore we carry those ancestors with us that provide the wisdom that we then take forward into the new era that we are moving into with different cultures coming together, but also different technologies and, and advances in, in medicine and, you know, in other areas of healthcare. I completely agree. And, and, you know, like at the beginning of the conversation, we were like, oh yeah, I go back to Colombia, I stay here. And that's like the only two options. But when I started thinking and, and when I talk to people that are in, in my situation and you start telling them, what are the different funeral options? So, you know, like here, that, that's an important conversation. I really think from the beginning, healthcare system, 
when you start being more transparent and you start educating people about the funeral options and not just the healthcare options, and you tell them how many different services are out there. I mean, you want to make jewelry out of your ashes? Get what? You can. Do you want to throw your ashes in Colombia, mm. in Argentina, and in, in, in Australia? Guess what? You can. So you empower people, not just by giving them the options of going back or staying, and that's it, mm. but also making them realize that in, in the between, we have developed services, ideas, and technologies that clearly are not what they are thinking, know that they're not perfect, but they can help. Hmm. And part of that is memorials and rituals. Online. Well, we've had memorials and rituals that we've developed through cultures, but exactly. then obviously they have to change now into a modern world and what we do. And storytelling. And storytelling is the a big part of that. So look, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Um, I think that, like you say, there are many things for us to think about going forward. The planning is a really good thing. And you obviously there's not two options, but you'd have to consider the options that are available because much like a birth plan, you can have it all planned in one way and then something else happens. And sometimes that uncertainty that we have in life is something that we also need to, you know, live with and, and, and grapple with. We may have a plan, but it may change. And so, you know, there'll, there'll be these options to be thinking about and both of them have their merits, but it's kind of when the time comes, I'm sure that thinking about it would have made a huge difference to how, how your plans go. So and thinking about it realistically. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's another part because we have that, hope for the best but plan for the worst um, or, or, or hope for the best and plan for the creative yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like so many options so many options that's my that's my call even for the you know like for the funeral services here in australia to also think about you know like options for for us you know yeah. like how to deliver these ashes not just the repatriation which is pretty expensive and people don't know anything about it. So, yeah. I think there are some funeral directors that are changing their ways. Yes, and I think are. that, you know, that's come through they are. certainly last decade or so. I've had seen that. Okay, anyway. very much. No. Having, Pleasure. me and my boys. I hope that this, this was, you know, like this whole conversation about home and home for what? Or, you know, like what do, what is that? You know, like what is that concept? I think it's a very good question for helping people planning and also educating them around all of the global options that they can yeah. have and not being this either here or here, yeah. but maybe there is. Well, hopefully people can have more time to plan for that because sometimes those questions come too late and then home is kind of where they can just get to really. Um, so thank you very much for um, being part of this. Um, I'm sure it will generate a lot of discussion. So thank you for all the work you're doing and um, take care.